0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty.
1: Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, is situated on the banks of the river Buriganga. The immense beauty of this river can only be seen through the eyes of a bird. Because as soon as you put your feet on the ground, thick layers of polythene and plastic waste emerge from the dirt. That
0: report of entire neighborhoods in Bangladesh, where the ground is made of plastic, is from WION News. And it's not just in Bangladesh. Plastic waste is everywhere on planet Earth because the amount of plastic humans have produced now outweighs all of the world's animals by a factor of two. As WION reports from the other side of the world,
1: The once pristine beaches of Rio de Janeiro have been engulfed in a tsunami of plastic waste. Everything from plastic bags and bottles to children's toys and dead fish.
0: Of course, fish are not the only victims. Plastics, through their manufacturing, use, and breakdown, are linked to cancers, lung disease, and birth defects. A study published this year in the journal Annals of Global Health concluded: quote, the main driver of these worsening harms is an almost exponential and still accelerating increase in global plastic production. Plastics' harms are further magnified by low rates of recovery and recycling, and by the long persistence of plastic waste in the environment. End quote. Perhaps nothing illustrates that persistence better than this report from Africa News. It's about the ever-growing 30-acre open-air Dandora dump in Nairobi, Kenya. Smoke billows from the mountain of waste at the Dandora Dump in Nairobi. People scavenge for recyclable materials we usually look for
2: plastic bottles, cotton boxes, gunny bags, bones and pig food, yet we do this without protective gear or gambles, so we sometimes get cuts from
0: glass. We're really suffering. A UN reporters condemned the site as a public health threat that could cause skin cancers and blood disorders. That's a public health threat from a smoking mountain of largely plastic waste. Well, just a few miles away from that dump, world leaders will gather this month to attempt to come to an agreement on how to reduce global plastic waste. So today we'll go inside the debate over a new UN treaty to control plastic pollution. What might it look like? Is that even a realistic goal at this point, given how much human beings rely on plastics products? Well, John Hosafar joins us today. He's the Oceans Campaigns Director for Greenpeace, and he will be heading to Kenya to take place or to take part in these talks. John, welcome to On Point. Hi, Meghna. So you're the Oceans uh, Campaign Director for Greenpeace. I, I imagine that uh, has taken you to places on land and at sea around the world, yes?
3: It has indeed. I, I do spend a fair bit of time on, on ships and airplanes.
0: Has there been a place at sea, for example, where you didn't, at some point in time in that journey, encounter a piece of plastic waste?
3: Unfortunately, there is nowhere left to go where we won't find plastic on our planet. Um, I was in Antarctica a couple of years ago, and we saw plastic in the snow. Um, it didn't come from anyone that was visiting in Antarctica. It is... Just a problem that we have put so much plastic into our world, it is circulating in the ocean currents, in the air currents, and it is settling literally everywhere.
0: So this was a piece of plastic that may may have come from, I don't know where I am, in Boston, Massachusetts, and floated through ocean currents all the way down to Antarctica?
3: That is a possibility, absolutely. Oh, wow. Wow.
0: I wish I could go there and find one of those pieces of plastic and do a story about where did it come from. But, the, but 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 what you're saying is that there's no place left on earth. I mean, i've even we've even seen I'm sure folks have seen pictures from you know Mount Everest at various base camps, even though I think the the custom is to try to uh, keep it as clean as possible. There's just plastic everywhere, even at the highest altitudes of planet Earth.
3: That's right. I think, you know, a lot of people first started to understand that we had a plastic problem when they were seeing pictures of sea turtles with straws in their noses or whales choked to death on plastic bags or, or maybe seabirds, you know, feeding lighters and bottle caps to their chicks. But it's much bigger than an ocean problem. It is It is truly everywhere. And it is a human problem. It's a climate problem. It's an environmental justice problem.
0: Mm. A little bit later, we'll talk about the effects of the plastics we don't see, right? All those microplastics and the chemicals within the plastic products themselves. Uh, But, John, so obviously the urgency of the problem is real and recognized. Uh, So tell me, what is the U.N. and this gathering trying to accomplish
3: well, the United Nations, meaning, you know, all of the governments in the world have agreed to negotiate a global plastic treaty for the first time, and that is in itself really powerful. There's a lot that can come from that. And they have uh, decided that this is urgent enough that they've committed to completing this treaty by the end of next year. And whether that's going to be possible or not, I you know, I'm not ready to bet on that. But still, they are, they are setting themselves an ambitious timeline, and that's that's important because, as you said, we have some real urgency here.
0: The timeline, if I understand correctly, is to create a, a workable treaty by next year, 2024.
3: Yes, that's right.
0: Okay, that does seem quite ambitious, especially given the, the fact, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just pl- that plastic pollution is growing and bad and uh, environmental and health threat. But there's also the flip side to that, and that is we rely on plastics for so many uh, products, uh, tools from the industrial scale down to the consumer scale. So this is asking for quite a change in a very basic uh, reality about modern life. Would the treaty aim to reduce the amount of plastic waste or reduce the amount of plastic production or both?
3: That is the million-dollar question, or I should say the trillion-dollar question. Uh, It is to be determined. The goal is to deal with plastic pollution, and what that means is so far very different to different governments. Um, Greenpeace's hope and expectation is that the treaty addresses plastic production, that we cap production and that we set ambitious reduction targets every year so we end up reducing plastic production by at least seventy five percent by twenty thirty or twenty
2: forty
0: well, uh, we we reached out to uh, several groups that represent uh, plastics manufacturers uh, in this country. And we heard back specifically from the American Chemistry Council, which mm-hmm. represents uh, obviously many of the uh, the plastics makers. They sent us a lengthy statement. I'll read from parts of it throughout the show. But first and foremost, they said society and modern life rely on plastic, as does our progress towards achieving the U.N. sustainable development goals. First of all, respond to that. John.
3: Well, I'm not surprised to hear them say that. I mean, the the largest plastic producer in the world is ExxonMobil. And so we're, you know, we're really talking when we're talking about petrochemical companies, we're we're talking about Exxon and Dow and and some of the biggest oil and gas companies on the planet. And you know, they've they've never particularly worried about Uh, climate change (laughs) as we all know and so here they are saying look we we can't get rid of plastic we need it because it's important for the climate and conveniently they are not mentioning that 99% of the plastic that we used is made from fossil fuels especially oil Mm -hmm. and gas in some places even coal
0: yeah Sometimes I tell my kids when they're drinking out of a water bottle that, you know, that bottle's made out of dead dinosaurs uh, and ancient (laughs) plants. But uh, just to note, we did reach out to Exxon, uh, Dow, and other major manufacturers as well. Um, They did not respond to our requests for interviews. But we have this statement from the American Chemistry Council. Let me just tell you a little bit more about what they said, John. Uh, Regarding those sustainable development goals, they point out things like plastic make make up critical components and solar panels uh, and wind turbines. They make cars and vehicles lighter so that there can be more fuel efficiency uh, from a gallon of gas, they even help. They're they're the the pipes through which clean water flow, uh, and it's important to quickly manufacture such pipes to get that kind of infrastructure to places uh, that have been suffering under uh, infrastructure neglect, sanitation, all of these things. You don't dispute that the pla- plastic is quite uh, essential to to development, to improving life in critical ways.
3: What I will say is that it's everywhere like you're absolutely <laughs> right about that. Uh, when you know when the petrochemical lobby points to these examples, it's really a distraction. I mean the the real conversation in this in these treaty negotiations is not so much about plastic in wind turbines or health care. It's in the trillions of throwaway, plastic packaging items that we go through every year, for example, uh, in fishing gear that's, you know, casually discarded and continues to pollute our oceans and, and uh, you know, entangle whales and other marine life for, for decades and even centuries. Um, what we're really wanting to focus on here is the stuff that's absolutely unnecessary. And that is the bulk of the plastic that we're using.
0: Mm. By the way... For all the listeners who are about to jump on their computers and send me an email about how can I possibly let my children drink out of plastic bottles, given the amount of plastic waste in the world, they almost never have their drinks out of plastic bottles. I just want to say we've got reusable stainless steel bottles. Please don't send me that email today. Um, uh, John, one last question before we take our first break here. What are your goals? What are Greenpeace U.S.'s goals for what they'd like to see come out of Uh, these treaty negotiations, because I think yours is quite ambitious regarding how much plastic reduction in plastic production you'd like to see.
3: This, This round of negotiations is an important one, because at this point, all of the good things are still on the table, and we want to make sure that they stay there. So that means that we have to make sure that this treaty is going to be talking about Reduction of plastic production. It needs to be talking about phasing out and eliminating dangerous chemicals and particular uses and types of plastic.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, to be more specific, if I understand correctly, you want to see a seven. You meaning Greenpeace wants to see a 75% reduction in plastic production by 2040 around the world. We'll have a lot more about that when we come back. We'll hear from a scientist uh, and from. Uh, another person who has a very different view on how to reduce plastic waste. So we'll be back. This is On Point.
1: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com onpoint On Point today to get 10% off your first month.
0: You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about a U.N. meeting coming up this month in Kenya where nations will begin the process of hashing out a treaty to reduce plastics around the world. I'm joined today by John Hosevar. He's Ocean's campaign director for Greenpeace U.S. And a couple of days ago we asked you listeners what you think about all the plastic in this world, if you've reduced your use of plastic. And oh boy, did we get a lot Of messages, here's just a taste of some of them.
1: On September 1st, 2022, I took a look around at all of the bags
2: that I had. Lots of bags, all different sizes, and lots and lots of wine bags. And I decided on that day that I would not take another bag from any business. And I haven't taken a bag since.
3: My husband and I took on a mission of using less plastic. So our shampoo is now bar soap. We buy our bar soap not wrapped in shrink wrap. We are using powdered dishwasher soap, powdered laundry soap. So we've been able to reduce our plastics greatly. I try very hard to keep all petroleum products out of
0: my house. That includes polyester. That includes those little plastic dental floss holders. That includes plastic bags. I go to great lengths to recycle what plastic does come home. I'm able to recycle numbers two, four, five, six, and styrofoam, but no one will take the number ones, the berry boxes, the salad green containers, the plastic cups. It's mind-boggling the amount of plastic in our landfills. Manufacturers have to be made responsible for their products, from their birth to the end of their usefulness. So that was just a few of the listeners we heard from. That was Lauren in Thousand Oaks, California, Kim in Natick, Massachusetts, and Kate in North Bend, Oregon. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the amount of plastics out there in the world. There's also the question of what's in them. Well Dr. Bethany Carney Elmroth is an ecotoxicologist at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, and she's advising national delegations at these early treaty negotiations. She told us that plastics today include more than sixteen thousand compounds. Those are chemical additives. So it's hard for science to keep up and determine what's safe and what isn't. Dr. Almroth told us she wants to see a treaty that bans chemicals and polymers that are known to be harmful for humans. And she wants to reduce the number of compounds to keep track of in the first place. One thing that I would really like to see is chemical simplification, where we don't have this same kind of proliferation of chemical diversity that we see now, but
4: really like pare it down to which ones we need in the products that are deemed essential,
0: and then just allow those, which would make it so much easier to regulate and understand and mitigate harm. That was Dr. Bethany carney Almroth at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. John Hosevar, hang on here for just a second, because I want to bring in Charlotte Lloyd into the conversation. She's an environmental chemist at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. Charlotte Lloyd, welcome to you. Thanks very much. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about the question of not just the plastics, but what's in them. 16,000 compounds, that seems like a a mind-boggling amount. Why are they needed?
4: So, there are various um, reasons why these chemicals are added to plastic, and there's a different recipe for every plastic that's being made, so that's why it, that complicates the issue even further. Um, so, these chemicals include things like um, what we call plasticizers, um, and these are added to make plastic more or less rigid, depending on um, what it is you're trying to make. Um, there are also um, things such as uh, UV stabilisers, so these are kind of sun cream for plastics, if you like. Um, so, they are compounds that will stop the plastic plastic from fragmenting too quickly um antioxidants again to stop the um ironically stop the breakdown of plastic uh, into microplastics too quickly uh, during its use uh, there's dyes fillers um you you know there's a huge number of different compounds um, that go go into these plastics
0: huh. okay so the visual waste is impossible to ignore. And that's one of the things that's galvanized many, many people. But the health effects come from what we can't see in the plastics. Is that correct?
4: Very possibly. I mean, that was my concern. So my work has focused uh, not on the microplastics, uh, but on the what I was calling the invisible plastic pollution, uh, because that's what really uh, worried me. I mean, there are some elements of the the microplastics, the polymers themselves, Um uh, that could be um, dangerous and, and, and toxic, but there is a huge amount of potential for um, acute toxicity in the, in the chemicals that are in the plastics.
0: Okay, so you said that's your concern, but my understanding was there have been many studies that do show some relationship between uh, the chemical additive or the chemicals in plastics and uh, negative human health effects.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a growing body of evidence that that is the case. Um, And I think the evidence there is stronger um, if you compare it with the evidence we have for the microplastic particles. That's not to say that they're not um, important to think about. They definitely are. Um, But yeah, there's growing evidence. Um, So some of these um, compounds are known endocrine disruptors. That means that they can mimic what our hormones do in our bodies. Um, And we've seen from the release of hormones um, from sewage works, for example, into rivers, how we've got fish changing sex and that kind of thing. Um, so some of these same chemicals uh, or the same um, action of these chemicals are within plastics.
0: Mm. You know, we heard a little bit earlier from uh, that that cut from Bethany Carney Elmroth, and she also mentioned that it's hard for science to determine what's safe and what isn't. And yet these compounds are still in plastics around the world. I mean, I suppose it. It matters what country the plastic technology is being developed in. But it does seem to me that that's a place of major disconnect. Do you think it might be possible to, I don't know, slow down the the process a little so that there's a regimen put in that new chemicals are tested for, for safety before they're put into plastics that are then sent out for consumer or d- industrial use?
4: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, we don't we don't give anything to, to people um, a- unless it's been thoroughly tested. But that's not the case in terms of plastic additives. We wait until we see that there's a problem. Um, and then we think, oh, hang on, we need to do something about that. So, uh, I mean, one of the biggest problems for me studying these compounds is that there is, um, there is no obligation for the uh, manufacturers to actually tell you what what is in those plastics. And, and when I've tried to find out what is in plastics that I've been um, investigating, I've got no information at all. I've got to forensically dissect the product to understand what's in there before I can go on and answer the important science questions.
0: No obligation for manufacturers to say what's in the plastics? No. Anywhere in the world? No,
4: not as far as I'm aware. <laughs>
0: Wow, I wonder. Oh, yeah. wow. I I wonder how that uh, aligns or conflicts with uh, uh, like EPA toxicology rules in this in this country. Um, I don't actually have the answer to, on the top of my head to that. John, do you have an answer to that?
3: Well, what I can say is that the American Chemistry Council and the petrochemical lobby has worked really hard to make sure that they are not required to report these chemicals, and that. You know, a lot of problems follow follow from that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, Charlotte, tell us a little bit more about. Um, there's different ways to measure the ubiquity of these these chemicals and 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 the plastics. I had read some studies from quite some time ago, many years ago, that said that uh, it's they're so deeply part of the environment that after a child is born. It's, you know, almost no time before there's evidence of of plastics or, or chemicals from plastics in a child's body. Does that ring true to you?
4: Yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, So as uh, I think John already mentioned, um, you know, plastic is airborne. So we're breathing it in all of the time. Um, We very frequently do tests in our laboratory to see what the background levels of both uh, microplastics and also chemicals from plastic are, because we obviously need to be very careful about cross-contamination when we're analysing for these things. We want to make sure what we're seeing is a real signal. So we keep track of this and we, we... we always see uh, microplastics and some of these chemical additives just within our lab environment, whether they're coming from clothes. So my team wear all cotton lab coats, <laughs>
3: um,
4: and we dye them bright colours as well so that they're very recognisable if there were to be um, any kind of cross-contamination. So it's something that we take really seriously. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere. And the chemicals, you can't really avoid them, and that's the problem. Um, you know, the public don't really have a choice as to whether they're going to cut plastic from their lives because it's it's all around us.
0: Right. Okay. And the and therefore the chemicals through various processes you talked about earlier um, leach from those plastics and in, into people's bodies. But also, it seems clear to me though that because of in part because of the challenges of understanding what the additives even are, that um, the science is still developing. In. Uh, regarding how we understand what the impacts of those chemicals are, Charlotte. I mean, in, the, in that case, is it potentially too early? Is it premature to come up with some kind of global treaty that either that limits the, the production of plastics if we don't have a really deep understanding yet of the, to- the potential toxic effects?
4: I think, um, well, we don't have all the information. I, I think one of the facets of this treaty is that it will be, um, you know, we need a starting point that we can then, when when the science does develop further, it can be updated. Um, but I don't think it's a good idea to say, well, we shouldn't do anything. Um, I mean, that's part of the problem, Wait, waiting until you see that there's definitely a problem um, and then it's um, and then it's too late. Um, I think we know enough to know that, um that we need to, to limit um, our plastic usage. And, you know, there, there are so many products that are just unnecessary. Um, so there's no harm <laughs> in getting rid of those.
0: So one more question, uh, Charlotte, mm. because you had mentioned that in the pharmaceutical industry, it's kind of the opposite of what we see in the chemical industry, right? The, the, mm. That ph- pharmaceutical companies have to spend quite a bit of time proving no harm, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of the drugs they put out. Uh, and it doesn't that process doesn't exist in the chemical industry to the same degree. Can we think of examples in which that has led to what you might consider delayed responses to products uh, that ended up proving harmful to human health coming out of the chemical industry?
4: Well, I mean, a good example I think I'd um, I'd give is so my my work has been focusing a lot on the use of plastic in agriculture. So the mulch films that you that you see may see laying across the soil and plants grown through. Um, now, in um, those uh, those plastics, there is currently no regulation, at least in the EU and in the UK uh, that I know of, which. Um, which says which chemicals can go into those plastics. Of course, food packaging has a lot more stringent um, regulation about what can go into there, Um, but that – leaves you in a situation where these mulch films, where you're growing food through for a whole growing season, so that could be months in a kind of nice, warm, wet environment where these chemicals could leach um, into the soil and potentially get taken up into plants. Once you had taken, say, those courgettes or something that you've been growing on that plastic or strawberries, you couldn't wrap those, um, those foodstuffs in that same plastic because it would be against food packaging regulations. So, there's a huge disconnect between where we do have regulation for chemicals and where we currently don't. And, you know, when I asked um, uh, kind of policymakers uh, in, the, in the UK about this, at least, they said, oh, oh, yeah, I can see that that could be a problem. <laughs> so, um, I think there are loads of little holes <laughs> that mm-hmm. need plugging um, to, to make sure we're really thinking about the impacts of these chemicals and where they could be
0: going. Yeah. So, okay. So John Hostovar, let me turn back to you briefly, because as you, as you mentioned earlier, the crux of the, the conversation as you see it, that should be happening this month as the UN as member nations gather is plastic reduction or uh, plastic production reduction or increase in, um, uh, recycling or other forms of waste management. Now, and I had asked you how much re- plastic reduction would you like to see. Maybe it was because we were coming up against that break, but you didn't say the specific number. I mentioned it, seventy five percent. Were you? Was there a reason why you were a little sheepish about saying that you wanted to see a seventy five percent reduction in production?
3: No, we we do indeed okay. want to see a 75% reduction in plastic production overall.
0: Okay, good. I just wanted to double check that. Um, so, John and Charlotte, hang on here for a second, because I now want to bring in David uh, Clement into the conversation. He's North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center. David, welcome to On Point.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So, I just want to maybe help paint a little visual picture for... Uh, listeners right now because obviously all they have to do is look around their environments they'll see plastic everywhere in Mm -hmm. the studio that I'm in I mean I'm holding a pen (laughs) that's definitely got a plastic uh, housing the computer keyboard totally plastic the 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 casing around uh, my headphone, even the headphone jack, plastic, knobs, plastic, computer monitor, plastic. I'm pretty sure there's plastic pieces on my shoes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's undeniable that – I don't want to say need, but modern life is uh, – reliant on all the things that plastics can do. So do you mm-hmm. see a reduction in production as a better goal or some other way to manage the deleterious impacts that all of these plastics have uh, on on the world?
2: Yeah, I think it's an important distinction. Uh, I think it's a valid effort to reduce plastic waste and to talk about how we can expand things like advanced recycling or chemical depolymerization so that none of All of the things you listed um, end up in landfills or or anything like that. I'm not so certain that a 75% reduction in plastic production um, benefits Americans or the environment. And there are a couple very um, interesting case studies, whether it be food packaging or medical devices, um, where that type of reduction in those spaces would be far worse for the environment and far worse for patient safety.
0: So tell me about one of those examples.
2: Yeah, so if I'm looking at food packaging, two, two examples. Um, so if we look at something as trivial as cucumbers, which can often come wrapped in uh, some sort of plastic, um, 1.5 grams of plastic wrapped around a cucumber extends the shelf life uh, of that item for about 14 days. And why does that matter? It matters because if that food spoils, um, you could go, You have to redo the entire production cycle for that item. And there are emissions associated with that. Um, the tractors that are required, the, the gas to uh, transport, these items. It's the same for things like berries and berry containers. I know that that was mentioned earlier. Um, It's true for baby food. The reason why baby food is in plastic um, is yes, because it's less expensive. Um, but according to researchers in Switzerland, it's also 33 percent better from an emission standpoint, mostly just because it's lighter and mm. easier to transport.
0: Mm. Well, so David Clement, hang on here for just a second. And Charlotte Lloyd and John Josef as well. will love to hear your uh, your response as to what David's offering. And we'll do that when we come back. This is On point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about an upcoming meeting uh, of United Nations member nations in Africa, specifically in Kenya, to try to hash out a treaty that would reduce the amount of plastic pollution around the world. I'm joined today by John Hosevar, Charlotte Lloyd, and David Clement. And um, we had discussed, David, you discussed very briefly uh, the examples of you know potential positive uses of uh, or essential uses of plastics in f- in food uh, wrapping and transportation and also uh, in the medical environment. On that latter one, uh, we spoke with Dr. Ted Shetler. He's science director of the Science and Environmental Health Network and an advisor uh, with Healthcare Without Harm. And he said, yes, it can be hard to cut back on plastic use for certain medical devices like IV bags. But scientists have also said that a kind of plastic used in many IV bags, specifically polyvinyl chloride, can actually potentially harm patients.
1: The Food and Drug Administration issued
2: a public health warning back in 2002 about excessive exposures to a particular phthalate, DEHP, that could leach out in unsafe amounts. But they didn't ban the use of polyvinyl chloride. So it continues to be used by a number of the large medical device manufacturers. But there are alternatives on the market.
0: David Clement, what's your response to that?
2: Well, I mean, it's it's an important conversation, but I think you have to lean on the FDA here in terms of what's approved and what's not because when it comes to these questions more often than not, they're looking at this from a cost benefit perspective in terms of what the, the value is. Um, they almost in terms of patient safety um, I can't speak to the um, the specific example he's using because I'm not as familiar uh, with it obviously as he is but mm-hmm. um, It's a question of, yes, alternatives may exist. Um, What are those costs? And do those alternatives also have externalities and what are those? Mm. And that is, I think, what is often missing in this debate about plastics. Um, And I'll give you an example. Um, The Environment Ministry of Denmark did a life cycle analysis comparing single-use plastic bags, the type that you would otherwise get at a grocery store. And when they look at 15, I think 15, 17 different environmental factors, um, you have to reuse something like a paper bag 40 times in order for it to be equal to a single-use plastic bag. And if we're looking at cloth bags or even worse, organic cotton, the use rate on it is is in in many instances beyond what a human being is capable of doing. So like an organic cotton bag. Mm It would need to be reused seventy or uh, seven thousand times, and that's I mean that's more than more than one human's lifetime trip to any store Seven thousand um, times in order to what? In order to be as environmentally advantageous as a single-use plastic bag, and when, that's taking in
0: when considering those externalities you were talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah, everything from how it's produced, the energy required, ocean acidification—it's uh, it's essentially like a full scope life cycle analysis. And I mean, this is from Denmark; they're not—they um, are not considered. Um, one of the countries who doesn't take this seriously. And that, I mean, that doesn't mean that if you want to reduce plastic, um, you, you, you should avoid alternatives. I mean, ultimately, that's up to consumers. Mm. But in terms of government policy, when we mandate that, um, it isn't necessarily better from an environmental standpoint, whether you're looking at emissions or, or, Uh, other aspects of the things that we care about, right? Wanting a cleaner environment. Well, John
0: Hosevar, you've been um, listening uh, along with us here. What's your response to uh, the point of view that David Clement's offering?
3: Well, I mean, there are really extensive critiques of, of that Denmark study and others. I mean, life cycle analysis can be a helpful tool, but ultimately it's only as good as the questions that we ask, the parameters that we set, the data that we use the assumptions that we make, and, you know, I think pretty much anyone, if you said a plastic bag is the best environmental alternative, is going to find that a little
2: bit suspect. Um, Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, just as one aside, I mean, the major critique on that study is it depends on the energy source used in production. Um, You would have a point if the energy source used in production was nuclear energy, um but historically speaking, that hasn't been something that Greenpeace has advocated for and has been something that Greenpeace has advocated against. So the, the critique isn't that it's wrong. The critique is that if you're if you're using cleaner, greener energy like nuclear, which is consistent and steady, um, then some of those numbers decrease in terms of, how often an item needs to be reused to equal that of a plastic bag. But I'm not sure that's quite the critique um, Greenpeace would be going for because it would require a massive expansion of nuclear energy. And as a Canadian who lives in Ontario in a province uh, that has completely shifted away from a lot of ugly types of energy production in favor of nuclear, I think that that's a huge net positive for the environment. But you, you, you might have caught yourself in a catch-22 here. Well,
0: let me, get, let me allow John to... To answer that. Go ahead, John.
2: Well, uh, I
3: mean, no, that wasn't our critique, but thanks for putting that in my mouth. Um, Look, the, the bigger point is that David thinks that this should be left to the consumers. And we heard some really inspiring stories from your listeners who are doing what they can to reduce the amount of plastic that they bring into their homes, that they use in their lives. And I think that's true for many of us all around the world. But the fact is, if you walk into a supermarket, you walk into a restaurant, really almost anywhere, you're going to find it very difficult at the moment to find options that enable you to avoid plastic. And our governments have really failed us in this regard. And we heard from Charlotte that there are 16,000 chemicals that are commonly used as additives and in, in plastic. The vast majority of them are unregulated. There's no transparency. We know that many of them are deeply problematic from a health standpoint, and and here we are. Mm. And so this is the role of government is to protect its citizens, and we are not seeing that. So that's what this treaty is about, is the governments of the world coming together and saying, all right, mistakes were made. We let this go too far we actually need to have some serious course correction.
0: Right. So, so David, um, on that, mm-hmm. on that point, um, there's one more question I have for you before we've got to let you go yeah. because y- y- you know, you, John is clearly advocating for a role for government here. And I heard you say equally clearly beforehand that you don't think government has a role and it should lay it the, in the hands of consumers that brought. Well,
2: to- it, it depends yeah. okay. I, I, in mandating, the the packaging options available i'm not sure that's the best route because i mean as we've seen in canada the the mandate on banning a variety of single-use plastics has pushed consumers to alternatives that are far worse yeah okay so
0: point taken but what i was gonna what i want to get to is that um uh you're the north american affairs manager for the consumer choice center and and Mm -hmm. um I believe, according to some research done by the University of Bath, that the Consumer Choice Center's uh, parent organization is a group called
2: Students for Liberty, which is a—that is not correct. That's
0: not who is, is who. So, who is your parent organization then?
2: There is no parent organization. It was started as a as a project uh, with some folks affiliated um, with Students for Liberty at okay. the time. Okay. Okay. Uh, but no, it's not our parent organization. There's no. Um, There's no affiliation with Students for Liberty um, at all beyond what would have been that original inception years ago. Um, We've reached out to them several times to try and correct this. They don't seem particularly interested, but I didn't mean to interrupt your question. It's just that the premise of it was um, repeating a a falsehood that we see quite a bit.
0: Okay. Uh, The Consumer Choice Center, though, has received funding... uh, Again, according to this report, (laughs) from Japan Tobacco International, Philip Morris International, Altria, British American Tobacco. Uh, So it clearly seems as if um, part of what the Consumer Choice Center is about is uh, advancing the interests of – the tobacco industry, including you know new forms of of uh, tobacco consumption, e-cigarettes, vaping, and the like. What I'm curious about is how does that part of what the CCC does connect with the point of view or the stance it has on plastics?
2: I I couldn't tell you. I don't. I have no idea what their view on plastics is. I have no idea. Um, We don't operate that way with anyone who's ever given us funding uh, in terms of caring about their stance. Uh, And I mean, on that subject, just for clarification, we talk about harm reduction across the board, whether it be um, safe injection sites or vaping. Um, We're rather strident in in our approach to harm reduction. And that may be where some interests align. Um, But I, I couldn't tell you what their position is on plastics our position, my position, is uh, how, do, how do these policies, how would a 75% reduction in plastic production overall impact consumers um, from a choice perspective, from an inflationary perspective, and from an environmental one? And I think that there are some, some big holes there um, that often get missed. And when we talk about plastics, for example, if you want to approach it with the horse blinders on and say, our only goal needs to be reducing plastic, then, of course, some of these policies um, would reduce plastic. Um, But if your question is broader than that in terms of how does this impact the environment, um, which I think is a more important concern, that's where things get complicated. Um, And and that's that's really the point Mm -hmm. on this.
0: Well, David Clement from the Consumer Choice Center, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, not a problem.
0: Charlotte Lloyd, you've been listening uh, patiently and I uh, much appreciate that. I just wanted to give you a chance to respond to some of what you heard David say.
4: Yeah, I mean, there were definitely elements of what he said that, you know, rings true. There are some areas where plastic is you know, become um, essential. If I go back to my example of the agricultural mulch films, um, you know, they they create a, um, a a big increase in crop yields if you're um, using plastic mulch. And there are some areas of the world where, uh, because of climate change, they'll become more and more reliant on um, on the use of those um, products. So, I agree that it's tif- you know it's very difficult to say we should just stop making plastic. But I think it's also a very uh, dangerous game. Um, I think we need to be um, thinking very carefully about the chemicals that are in the plastic. So where we really need to use plastic, we need to design the best Product possible um, with the least uh, environmental harm.
0: Yeah. I want to come back to something that one of our listeners did say a bit earlier when she said that there are types of plastics. This was Kate who called us from North Bend, Oregon. She can recycle plastics number two, four, five, and six and styrofoam, but no one will take the number ones in her area. I think a lot of people have experienced that. Um, I can't speak for the UK, uh, Charlotte, but in the United States, um, in the past several years, the type Types of plastics that various municipalities will accept has has changed dramatically and and dropped. To that point, um, again, the American Chemistry Council said in a statement to us that the UN's global agreement on plastics should focus on ending plastic pollution, not production. They say the primary culprit of plastic pollution is inadequate waste management. Instead of reducing the supply of material used in so many essential products, the focus should be on excuse me on preventing pollution. John, what what do you think about about that? Shouldn't that also be Well, they're saying it should be the focus, but shouldn't it also be part of the efforts here?
3: Well, we did a very comprehensive assessment of plastic recycling in the United States. We looked at every material recovery facility that we have and what they accept and what they do with that material. And what we found is that only bottles and jugs, the ones and twos that are bottles and jugs are widely recycled in the United States. So there may be places where you can recycle styrofoam, for example, but that is very much the exception. Almost everywhere in the country that is going to a landfill or an incinerator. So that's that's a big part of the issue here. When people start talking about recycling, we need to understand the limitations of that. The vast majority of plastic is never going to be recycled. It doesn't make sense economically or environmentally.
0: It might, is that because, I believe I'm recalling a reporting from the past that said uh, China at one point in time was taking a great deal of U.S. plastics and doing the recycling, and they are, they're no longer doing that?
3: That is true that China is no longer accepting plastic waste imports. Uh It doesn't really mean that they were recycling a lot of it either. But
0: can it be recycled, though? I mean, I I take your point about it's not. Maybe a lot of it is not right now. It's being incinerated. But that doesn't mean the technology doesn't exist to do the
3: recycling, right? Is this an economics question? Well, you know, if you throw enough carbon and money and time at it, you can recycle almost anything. But that doesn't mean that it makes sense to do that. I'm not clear clear what what you're saying
0: because I'm just thinking they're that little, you know, rounded triangle with the number in it. It's so ubiquitous. It implies that it can be recycled.
3: Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the problems we have is that it has really been misleading for consumers. You know, most of us maybe not feel good about it, but feel better about all this plastic in our lives because we see those symbols and we assume that it can be or even will be recycled. And... In the vast majority of cases, it will not be.
0: It will not be because of the cost of it or the technology
3: does not exist to recycle it? I really feel like we need clarity on this. Sure. Yeah, no, it's primarily the cost uh, and the time and the carbon that it takes to do that. So it it, uh, it is far cheaper for companies to produce new items out of virgin plastic resin than recycled I got for it. almost everything.
0: I got it. Okay. That makes me wonder then if part of this treaty should include some kind of, uh, I don't know, financial or economic incentives to make recyclable plastic uh, a more attractive material. But you know what? I, As far as I understand, the process is just at the its beginning. So as uh, the UN nations meet and try to hash something out, we'll definitely keep on top of uh, developments there. We'd love to have both of you back. So, John Hosevar, Oceans Campaign Director for Greenpeace US, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And Charlotte Lloyd, Environmental Chemist at the University of Bristol, my great appreciation to you as well. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks very much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. This is On Point.